I want to add my welcome to those you have already received on the South Campus and, and downtown and north, and we'd like to invite all of us on all three of these campuses now to bow in prayer. Lord, in the little speck called the universe, there's a little speck called the Milky Way. And in the Milky Way, there's a little speck called the solar system. And in the solar system, there's a little speck called the Earth. And on the earth, there's a little speck called Bethlehem Baptist Church. And here we are, under you, the non-speck. So God, I pray that you would come and make your majesty and your absolute being known and felt as the most basic foundation for all else that is. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 11 messages that, Lord willing, I will bring between now and the end of the year, My ultimate goal is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. In other words, I want to make so much of God the Father and God the Son through God the Spirit that you would be drawn to join me in glad adoration of our triune God. Under that overarching goal for these 11 messages is this. Another goal, I want to awaken and strengthen a strong conviction in all of you that are part of Bethlehem that the last 30 years has not been primarily consummation, but is preparation. Or to put it in another way, I hope to help you see and feel that the transition between Jason Meyer and me is not mainly about landing but about launching. Or, to say it another way, the focus in this transition season should not be mainly on the great things God has done, but the greater things He is yet to do. That's my other goal. Therefore, it has seemed good to me and with the encouragement of the pastoral staff to not pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John as much as I would love to do that and maybe finish two more chapters and leave us all dangling at chapter 17 
but rather to deliver a, a battery of messages based on some defining truths of Bethlehem, 30-year trademarks, you could call them, biblical touchstones that have shaped this church profoundly for the last three decades. And that's what I'm going to do, Lord willing. The reason this seems like a good way to launch rather than land is because Jason Meyer and the elders and the staff and hundreds and hundreds of you are of one mind concerning these things. We are not moving blind into the transition. We are not going with a big question mark over where we will stand under the new leadership biblically and theologically. Rather, we hold some incredibly powerful foundational realities, wildly untamable explosively uncontainable, electrically future-creating, and holding these together, there is no reason to think that God who delights in these things would not be here for a massive blessing. So let me make clear... Obvious, I hope, and I want to say it right out that before we launch into the launch here in this service with these explosive truths that'll take us for 11 Sundays, Saturdays, I want to say I have little doubt, and the little doubt that is there is not of God, but of non God that Bethlehem, beyond John Piper, in this pulpit, will experience the greatest seasons we have ever known. And I say, we. The next season of Bethlehem's life will be the greatest season. Now, we've all known ministries that have flourished for decades. A leadership change happens, and things fall apart. Impact wanes, hope fades, joy departs, ministry dwindles and even dies. My deep conviction is... God is not going to let that happen, and if I had to, I would stake my life on that prediction. And I don't say that lightly. Not to pump you up with some kind of artificial hope or expectation, but because of biblical realities, 
present evidences of God's amazing grace and favor on us in transition. The reason these foundational realities I'm going to talk about, these 30-year theological trademarks, these biblical touchstones, give me hope, is because of how pervasive and deep is the common conviction of the staff and the new leadership and the council of elders and so many hundreds of you. There's more. God's fingerprints, the fingerprints of His grace and favor and guidance, are all over this process. Some of those you can see, and others, for those on the inside, we can see better. The last ten months are, in my mind, perhaps the most miraculous months of my life here. Those of us who have watched this emergence of Jason Meyer, the unification of the staff around him, the unity of the elders around him, the stunning unity of a closed ballot vote of 800 people around him leaves those of us who've been through these things before with our mouths open in astonishment at God's favor on us. There's more. God's hand is on Jason Meyer. Yes, the biblical realities and the unifying theological convictions are in place. And yes, there's been astonishing staff and elder and congregational unity, which would all be of no avail if God's hand were not on this man. If God had not said, tell them I am sent, Jason. God has called him, put his hand on him. Some of the evidences of that, you can see. Those who've known him longer and better can see more. All of this together is why I say that the transition from my leadership to Jason's leadership will not result in waning impact, loss of hope or joy or dwindling effectiveness, but rather in the world and in these cities, the greatest season is coming. We will find ourselves moving into greater works of God. And so we turn now to the battery of foundational realities, the defining truths, the 30-year theological trademarks 
the biblical touchstones, whatever you want to call them, we turn to them now which have so shaped us and will continue to shape us. And it is precisely because they are, you will find, wildly untamable and utterly uncontainable and electrically future-creating. You will see this unless you are blind. Here's the first one. God is. Or to say it with our text, God is who He is. Or to say it philosophically, God absolutely is. Period! And everything changes. One of the billions of facts of all the billions and billions of facts that there are, this fact, God is, is the most basic and the most ultimate. All other facts rest here. All other facts go there. There is nothing underneath the fact God is holding it up. Nothing above the fact God is to which all is tending. This is the most basic, most ultimate fact that is. God is. Nothing is more foundational to the church than God is. Nothing is more foundational to your life your marriage, your job, your health, your mind, your future, then God is. Nothing is more foundational to the Bible or to the self-revelation of God in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ than God is. That's the point of today's text. And I invite you to turn there with me. Exodus 3. Let me set the stage. For several centuries, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, has lived as aliens in Egypt. And now for some time, they've been slaves. And God has seen. And this great God has said, No more! And he comes and causes a little baby to be born named Moses. And miraculously he escapes the death edict by the rescue of the Pharaoh's daughter. And he's raised in the court of his enemy. Amazing stories in the Bible. And then he kills an Egyptian to save a Jew and has to escape to Midian. And in Midian 
God comes in a burning bush and addresses him like this. Verse 6, chapter 3 of Exodus. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the, out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, Moses is God's chosen leader to bring the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land. And he shrinks back. Who would not? Would not Jason shrink back? Have not I shrunk? Would you not shrink back? Verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God said, verse 12, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this very mountain. And then, Moses brings us to one of the most important things God has ever said. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, now, Hebrew, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, you ask my name. I have three things to say to you, Moses. Number one, verse 14 God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's not his name. He didn't say his name. He answered the question first. 
He said, in effect, before you worry about my name, before you line me up in all the names of the gods of Egypt or Babylon or Philistia, before you ponder conjuring me with my name, before you wonder if my name lines up with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, before you think about my name, know I am. That's the most basic thing you need to know, Moses. The most basic thing those people need to know is, I am who I am. That's first, before name. That's foundational. That is infinitely important. That's basic. That's at the bottom of everything. Second, verse 14, middle of the verse, and he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's not his name. He hasn't got to the name yet. He's building a bridge from his being to his name. Here it is simply, the one who is, is sending you. So get my being right, my absolute being right. Put me and my being at the bottom of everything and then go tell the people, that's where we're starting. His being, the one who is, absolutely sent me to you. That's number two. Third thing he says, verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to this people, Yahweh, that's his name. Always translated in the ESV with all caps, L-O-R-D. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So, finally, he tells Moses his name. Four thousand times plus in the Old Testament. Yahweh. This is amazing. God gave himself a personal name like James or Peter or John. This is not a title. This is a name. Pastor is a title. John is my name. Yahweh is Elohim's name. Elohim is God. Yahweh is James. Yahweh. And he built the name Yahweh. If you knew Hebrew, you could just see this. He built the name Yahweh out of ha or Yahweh. Be, I am. So that 
every one of those 4,500 times that it is said or read, we would know, I am, I absolutely am. That's what he chose to highlight as his name. In case you wonder, you know this word because the shortened form of it is Yah, and you hear it at the end of the word Hallelujah. Every time we sing Hallelujah, imperative praise, Yah is Yahweh. So I hope, I hope now, whenever we say Hallelujah, Hallelujah, we mean praise the one who is, praise the absolute being of God. Because he told us to know him that way in his personal name. So this is the first of 11 foundational realities, defining truths, 30-year trademarks, that has shaped Bethlehem profoundly for these 30 years. We are blown away by the truth that God is. And if you aren't, you're asleep. It is a staggering thought and reality. God absolutely is. This is explosively uncontainable. This is wildly untamable. This is electrically future creating. And so what I want to do now is to tell you ten things that it means. A people who are stunned by the reality that God is who He is will be a people to whom God loves to come. Our triune God loves to stoop down and show up in gracious power where people are blown away by His being. Here's what it means for God to be God. Number one, God's absolute being means He never had a beginning. This staggers the mind. Ask any child. Daddy, who made God? Every child asks that question. It is an understandable question. And every wise parent says, nobody made God. God has always been Never came into being? No. No beginning. 
always was. Number two, God's absolute being means God will never end. He won't go out of being. If he did not come into being, he cannot go out of being because he is being. There is no place to go outside being. There is only He. Before He creates, that's all there is. God. And no place to go because there is no place. There's only God. Number three. God's absolute being means God is absolute reality. There is no reality before God. There is no reality outside of God unless God wills it and makes it. He is not one of many realities before He creates. He is simply there. And he is absolutely there. He is all that was eternally. There was no space. There was no universe. There was no emptiness. There was only God. And that's all that ever was eternally. And there is no room for emptiness anywhere because there is no where. Number four, God's absolute being means that God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or to support him or to counsel him, or to make him what he is, that is what the word absolute being that I'm using means. All other being is contingent and dependent. That's the opposite of absolute or independent. So he is utterly independent. Number five, God's absolute being means, rather, that everything that is not God depends totally on God. All that is not God is secondary, dependent. The entire universe, let it be said clearly and matter-of-fact, the entire universe is secondary. And God alone is primary. The universe came into being by God, stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it in being. It is utterly, totally fragile and dependent and secondary. And God 
holds it in existence every millisecond of its being. If he changed his mind, it would be nothing. Six, God's absolute being means all the universe is, by comparison to God, as nothing. Contingent, dependent reality is to absolute independent reality as a shadow to a substance. As an echo to a thunderclap, as a bubble to the ocean. All that we see, all that we are so amazed by in this universe is compared to God as nothing. Isaiah 40:17 All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Parenthesis. Unless those kinds of truths in the Bible concerning our majestic God land on you and have their appropriate effect, it will mean very little to you when he shows up to save those nations and die for them. If you try to jump over the statement, they're nothing to him, and get to the cross where he pays the highest possible price for them, you won't get it. So many people do an end run around so many truths in the Bible on their way to what they're comfortable with. And they get there, and the foundations on which they stand are this thick. And is there any wonder there's so many fragile Christians in the world? Close that parenthesis. Number seven. God's absolute being means that God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who He is. There is no development in God. There is no progress in God. Absolute perfection cannot be improved. Number eight. God's absolute being means that He is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There's no law book to which He looks in determining what is right and just. There is no almanac 
to establish the facts for God. There is no guild to determine what is excellent or beautiful in art, music, creation. He himself is the standard of what is right, what is true, and what is beautiful. Number nine, God's absolute being means God does whatever He pleases, and it is always right, and it is always beautiful. There are no constraints on Him from outside that could hinder Him from doing what He pleases. All reality that is outside Him, He created, He designed, He governs as the absolute reality. So, He is utterly free from any constraints that don't originate in the counsel of His own will and therefore being absolutely free, He always does His good pleasure. And it is always right and beautiful. And number ten, God's absolute being means that He is the most important and the most valuable reality and the most important and the most valuable person that is. He is worthy of your highest interest, your greatest attention, your deepest admiration, and your sweetest enjoyments. Including being superior in all those ways to the whole universe. That is what we believe. God is. It is a wildly untamable, explosively uncontainable, and electrically future creating reality. God is. I wrote a devotion for the staff a month ago on this topic and read it to them and I'm going to read you a piece of it. This flows from what we've just seen. Therefore, it is a cosmic outrage billions of times over that God is ignored, treated as negligible, questioned, criticized, treated as virtually nothing, and given less thought than the carpet in people's houses. 
It is a cosmic outrage. Being the most significant reality there is, nothing is rightly known apart from its relationship to Him. He is the source and goal and definer of all things and all persons. We will therefore be a God-besotted people. To know Him, to admire Him, to make Him known as glorious is our driving passion. He is simply overwhelmingly dominant in our consciousness. All will be related to Him. Bethlehem. That's who we are. God helping us, we will not blaspheme this God by taking Him for granted by making Him peripheral, by calling Him the foundation, while we enjoy everything but God, like a house, where all is held up by these foundational walls in the basement, and we never think about the food in the kitchen and the TV and the den and the sex in the bedroom is our life. No. No. Not on Jason's watch. We're not going to call him our foundation. He's the kitchen. He's the bedroom. He's the den. And everything rightly enjoyed, and it is rightly enjoyed, in each of those rooms is enjoyed in and through and for His great being. Or we haven't yet learned what it is to be human. So, God, please, don't let me us ever come under the criticism of Albert Einstein. 20 years ago, I close with this, 20 years ago, I read an article by Charles Meisner in which he quoted or referred to Albert Einstein. And when I read it, I'll tell you how I responded, but let me read it to you first. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, this is Meissner talking, that is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business of the universe. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted in fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God 
and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And when I read that, ten years into my ministry, I said, never, 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 never will that happen to me. Jason and I believe with all our hearts that there are thousands of people in these twin cities and billions among the unreached peoples of the world who would love to know this God who absolutely is. And we, we and you, we know the news We know the news that on this little speck of a planet, in this little speck of a solar system, in this little peanut of a universe, God Almighty came for us. in the person of his son and stretched himself on the most agonizing way of dying possible in order that we might know him and enjoy him. We know this news. And therefore, we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of this great God for the joy of all peoples through the crucified King of Kings and Lord of Lords who said before Abraham was, I am. That's why we're here. And if Jason continues on loving, exulting in, and lifting up a people, with these passions, God will show up. I'll tell you why next week. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I don't doubt, because I know Jason, I know the elders, I know the staff, I know where we are, I know what we love, I know something of your word and your glory. And therefore, I am brimming with a sense of tiptoe anticipation of what you are about to do in this transition and this new season of this great God-dependent church. I thank you. Help us to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.